It's like, I'm thinking about food all the time. I'm stressed about it. I'm constantly reading labels. I'm restricting, doing all kinds of things, binge eating. And she tells me that's aspirational. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't. (laughs) Today's guest and I bonded on social media back in 2020 after he listened to my first few podcast episodes. Tim is an educator, mental health and health equity activist, and a doctoral student exploring trauma-informed care and undoing toxic wellness. He's also the founder of Clove Health, a medical communications company that designs inclusive, culturally sensitive, and trauma-informed clinical resources and patient education. On this episode, we dive into topics like what the wellness industry really is, what really contributes to your overall well-being, and how men are sometimes left out of the conversations when it comes to mental health. It's a great episode. Enjoy. Tim, thank you so much for coming on the Human First podcast. How are you? I am doing okay. I am this is this is my first podcast interview, so I'm really excited and a little anxious, but I'm so glad it's you that I'm having this conversation with. I'm so glad too. That makes me super happy. And it makes me super happy because I love who you are as a human and listeners know that the first question that I always ask is tell me about you as a human. So what would you like us to know, whether that's related to what this topic is that we're discussing today or not? Tell us about you as a human. Yeah. So just want to offer before I dive into my story, a content notice, going to be talking about all kinds of things from suicidality to mental illness to all kinds of insecurity and abuse neglect things like that i grew up in a very small town in delaware like less than one area and square miles small like one intersection one school it was like something off a movie and um, i grew up on farmland that my grand my great-grandfather and grandfather owned before my grandparents um, put a house there and my family was very poor you know, we did not have enough money for food. We relied on my grandparents to mail us food for several years to just kind of help offset things. My dad and my mom both worked like very labor-intensive jobs, cleaning and construction, just to really, really just make ends meet. And throughout my childhood, you know, I had a lot of adversity. Like my ACE score is eight out of 10. Had a lot of things happen in my family. I I typically sum up my childhood in two words. I say it was a lot of drama and trauma. And it's it's very (laughs) true. You know, my parents both really did the best that they could with what they had, while also not really having the support that they needed. So it was hard for them to give me what I needed as a child. You know, I was abused. I was neglected as a child. And because of that, like most people who have been through that, I had to take care of myself and see to a lot of my needs as a kid. You know, I was cooking a lot of my meals and taking care of the home, trying to take care of my mom, who was severely depressed for several years. My dad was working away from home. So it was really just me and her in this home that was infested with insects and, and rodents. And it was just a really dreadful living situation for, you know, the first 10, 11 years of my life. At one point, my dad was able to get a, a better job and we moved to a better home and things started to kind of turn around. But as I went through middle school and high school, I was still really struggling with the same things that I struggled with as a child. It just presented differently because I was evolving. My parents were evolving. And when I was in high school, I struggled with severe depression and anxiety. And on top of 
you know, my circumstances of not really having the support that I needed, plus being a teenager and not being able to really get the help that I needed at the time. It was a lot. It was a lot. And I started therapy when I was 15 years old. Didn't really have a great first three years of therapy in hindsight. Wasn't really the help or type of therapy that I needed. So while I was in high school, I um, was very interested in mental illness um, and health in general. So I went to a technical school and studied nursing for three years at a vocational high school. At the time, I wasn't even really aware of what I was doing, but I became kind of an activist in high school for these different causes and won like the Governor's Youth Service Award and all these things for advocating for mental health and working with NAMI and working with other organizations that were focused on like heart and lung health. While I was in high school, you know, I was never really athletic. I was really this tall, really skinny guy. And I started to um, struggle with body image issues and started to learn about bodybuilding and reading about nutrition and fitness. So I started going to the gym and, you know, that was really helpful during my high school years because it gave me an outlet for frustration. Like, you know, that's, I think why a lot of teenage boys go and work out is to have an outlet for, for emotions that they don't know how to process or, you know, they're into athletics, but most of them would tell you like they need to play the sport. And, you know, we can talk about that later. I have a lot of thoughts on that, (laughs) but you know, started dieting when I was in in high school. And as I graduated, I started working in the healthcare field. I started to feel like, you know, I was really passionate about health and fitness and nutrition. But over the years, um, especially the most, the past two to three years, I've realized that, you know, during that time, I was also struggling with an eating disorder. It wasn't a passion. It was that I was so preoccupied with food and my body and fitness and what it meant to look a certain way and to show up a certain way and to eat a certain way. So during this time, after I graduated high school, um, like I said, I was working in healthcare for about two years right after I graduated. And I became really disgusted with the healthcare system, Mm. just seeing how patients were treated, seeing the bills and hearing about the bills that folks would get while they were in the hospital. And it just wasn't what I thought it was to be in the healthcare industry. So in my early twenties, I was like, Hey, I actually don't want anything to do with this. I had a full scholarship to study nursing. I just gave it up and was like, I don't don't want anything to do with this field. Went into the real estate industry for a few years. And while I was in that industry, I was working insane amounts of hours, 50, 60 hours a week, doing the hustle and grind thing that entrepreneurs do. And I was also hospitalized three times and my blood pressure was through the roof. And I could not figure out what was going on with me. I was going from doctor to doctor and getting all these tests. And I ended up with an infection in my heart. I was hospitalized for five days at one point. That's when I became introduced to, or was introduced to integrative medicine and holistic health. And at the time, despite my healthcare training, like I had no idea how stress impacted our body. I had no idea how like my childhood could potentially be connected to the things that I was struggling with and the symptoms that I was having. So when I learned about ACEs and trauma and just the biology of stress after I was hospitalized, I was kind of like grieving the past few years that I spent running away from healthcare and running away from myself and kind of disconnecting from myself and 
Uh, also experienced the loss of my grandmother during this time to cancer. And I just really reflected and was like, you know, I think there's something here for me. So I ended up going down this path of going back to graduate school and studying nutrition. You know, during that time, I learned a lot about policy and all of these things that really intersect with what I'm doing now as it relates to trauma-informed care and, you know, just being interested in, in political advocacy and social justice advocacy and things like that. So lots of details I left out, but that's mm-hmm. kind of a, you know, a, a 360 quick summary of how I got to where I am right now. Thank you for sharing all of that. So much came up for me as you were talking and I want to talk about them. I think two of them we can, we'll probably end up getting into when we're actually talking about the topic of discussion for today. One of them I'm just curious your process. And I think that a lot of listeners could resonate and gain something from whatever your answer will be to what I'm about to ask. You said something about experiencing abuse and neglect in your childhood. And at the same time, you said that you understand that your parents did the best that they could. And I feel like that's very difficult. That's a difficult place for people to come to, to to reach a point where they understand that they could have gone through certain things during their upbringing and their parents could have done the best that they could. And so I'm just curious if you could share at all, what was that process like to get to that point? And and what does that feel like now to have that be part of your truth? Yeah, that's, that's a really important question. So, I mean, the first thing that I think about is that was not my perspective going through these events and experiences at all. Like, you know, there were many years where I, hated my mom. Like I did not feel love from her or for her because I just didn't understand why she was doing what she was doing. But, you know, like I said, as a teenager, I was looking for answers. And as a kid, I would look for answers. And like, I remember when Ask Jeeves was like the main search engine. (laughs) Yeah. Like childhood abuse, mental illness, psychiatry. And I would find like, you know, some of the first Wikipedia articles or just other blogs that people were writing And from a young age, I knew like, okay, I'm not really alone. I know that, but what I'm still going through is really shitty. And even, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I was in therapy at the time. I wouldn't even say that the therapy I was in even contributed to the perspective that I have today because my therapist was, you know, all about cognitive behavioral therapy. And we really didn't talk a lot about like what I was going through at the time. And to be transparent, I don't even remember really sharing that. Mm -hmm. Um, with my therapist. One thing that kind of contributed to this perspective from an early age was I started reading a lot of personal development books, like self-help books. And, you know, those books and those programs offer a lot of perspective into why people do what they do. And I just started to think about like, you know, because I had this question, like, why is my mom acting like this? Why does my dad do these things? And I started to just connect what I was reading and looking at to my parents and just looking beyond myself. But again, at the time, it still wasn't helpful. I was like, this is still really fucking painful. And this is really awful how I'm spoken to and how I'm treated. And like even seeing the things that my parents between their relationship and among the family, how we were treating each other, it was really bad. So over the years after graduating high school and really focusing on these things and therapy, I just started to see my parents as human beings versus mom and dad, you know, because I think we grow up and it's our teachers and it's mom and dad. And it's, you know, 
the school counselor, we don't really see them as individuals who have experienced all kinds of emotions and things in their life. We don't really see people as human, you know, which is your, your really your whole platform. And it took me a lot of years of intentionally trying to have empathy for my parents. And, you know, that's a whole other journey of developing empathy for people who have hurt us and who have, yeah. you know, who have not treated us well. So it's really just been a journey. And, you know, in terms of like the process, I really wish I had a process, you know, I really wish I had a system or a process that people could just kind of plug and play in their life. But, you know, I think what you said in the beginning before you asked your question is something to really consider. It's I can have experience or you can have experienced these things and you can still feel a certain way about your parents or whoever it is that has hurt you. Two things can be true at once and we can get more into this, but you know, a lot of, a lot of therapy approaches to therapy and self-help and personal development. It calls on us to accept like personal responsibility for every single thing that doesn't really leave a lot of room for the nuance of our individual experience or our life. It doesn't leave room for having two or three, sometimes four conflicting emotions at the same time. That's very real. And, you know, to this day, of course, like I still feel hurt by the things that happened to me as a child and things that my parents said, but, you know, I also love my parents and I know that they love me. And like I said, I know that they were doing the best that they could with what they had. Yeah. That was really helpful. Thank you so much for explaining it like that. And then you're right. We all hold so many different types of emotions and perspectives. And I think as humans, we try to say like, okay, which one of these is right? Right. And sometimes they're all right. And that's what we need to come to terms with, which can be so painful. It's so painful because we want to live in this dichotomous world because it'd make things easier. But we, we constantly find ourselves trying to balance somewhere in the middle. And everything that we we read too, it's like you have to forgive before right. you love yourself or you have to love someone unconditionally before you can be in a relationship with them. And that's, I don't really think that's true. Uh, yeah, me neither. I mean, the work I'm doing right now in therapy is exactly that. It's finding a balance between like accepting my parents for who they are still after all these years, still like still working on that. And then trying to figure out how can I have a relationship with them, even though they've done what they've done and do what they do still actively. So, oh, that, I mean, we got to do another podcast episode on this on parents. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> but let's, let's dive into the topic because the next question I was going to have for you was tell me your why, but I think your background story really explains the why, because you've touched on all of the different areas on the wellness industry, on your own health, on your upbringing, on being in school and going to therapy and not learning these things, which is the other thing I wanted to talk about as we go through these questions is going to therapy and, and being in school and to become a nurse and in the healthcare field and not knowing how our actual life experiences in childhood can contribute to our health and our well-being. And you also said something that I want to make sure we dive into, which was when you noticed that your, uh, your physical exercise and your working out was not a passion. Mm-hmm. It was instead something else, which we'll get into. And yeah. so I just wanted to note those two things to make sure we go back and talk on those. So we're talking about the wellness industry and men's mental health, men's eating disorders, the wellness industry. 
I truly believe that even though the people that are going to listen to this episode follow my platforms and understand that I'm a healthcare professional, don't quite understand what the wellness industry is. So, and you do such an excellent job breaking this down. Can you please explain to our listeners, what the hell is the wellness industry? Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's still a really great question. So I think <laughs> most of us, we think about the wellness industry, we start thinking about supplements, yoga, meditation, wearables, self-care. We think about all of those things. And before I answer that question, I just want to acknowledge that like, this is not my like discovery or research. Like I have learned a lot of this from other people, folks who are fat activists, fat liberationists, lots of folks who are black and brown or the members of the LGBT community. You know, a lot of what I'm about to say has been around for quite some time. And I'll talk about the origins of the, the term self-care, but I just want to acknowledge this is not like my proprietary discoveries or anything here, but I certainly have my own journey of experiences and things with this. So, you know, that's what we kind of think about with wellness. It's, it's all of those things, yoga, meditation, and apps. Now, a lot of people like myself, I think we come across the practices of wellness or we engage with the wellness industry when something is going on in our life where we either sought treatment from the traditional medical community and we're kind of let down, we don't find what we need, we don't get the help that we need, or we don't have access to those things for whatever reason. We can't afford it. It's not within driving distance. We, we don't have access to a doctor who's culturally competent or able to provide us with the care that we need. So we start looking for alternatives. And the wellness industry talks a lot about that. They're like, you know, very common messaging, you know, traditional medicine didn't work for you, or this treatment wasn't successful, then take this supplement or do this program. So for a lot of people like me, the wellness industry and using different products and services and supplements can be immensely helpful. Like there, I, I don't want to detract from the value that any wellness service or product can provide to someone. There's a lot of benefit to be had from these things. But I, I think a lot of people don't realize that the wellness industry, it's, it's a for-profit industry, just like anything else, oil and gas or the automotive industry or healthcare, you know, these products and services in the wellness industry exist because those companies want to make money, just like the healthcare industry makes money from us being sick, as does the wellness industry. And I think that's something we're not really aware of because the wellness industry and the healthcare industry do a really great job at greenwashing everything that they do. Patient-centered and heart-centered and it's green and environmentally friendly. And, you know, we care about people and just using that type of empathetic language, it's marketing. And mm -hmm. it's very easy to start to feel like, oh, the wellness industry is the answer. Like it's the opposite of the healthcare industry. It's about prevention, but it's kind of the same, you know, it's kind of like any other industry. As a kid, I was seeking out resources and help. I came across a lot of personal development and self-help books in high school. And then as I started my own business, you know, I started reading a lot of, you know, like biohacking and lifestyle optimization things. But for me, and I think for a lot of people, a lot of those things that are presented to us as solutions or the things that we're told we should do, like a certain diet, a certain workout program, thinking a certain way, planning our day a certain way, again, can be helpful, but they can also be distractions. They can also be a way to kind of 
preoccupy ourselves and, and a distraction from what we should actually be doing. So I'll pause there for a second. Yeah. It's kind of scary mm. what you're saying, but, and I wanted to point that out because I feel like some of like the listeners yeah. are probably like, okay, so like, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> like, what am I supposed to do? And like, yeah, comparing the wellness industry to like the oil industry, it's like, oh my God, it makes it seem so like demonic, you know, but, and, but honestly it can be, and it, it really can be. And I think like also one thing I'll add about the wellness industry, because I want to know, like, how did we get to this point? How did the wellness industry develop over time? Sometimes people in the wellness industry, it's a true ignorance. Like they believe that if they're using these terms, these, these empathetic phrases and, and greenwashing, and, and even if they are environmentally friendly, that that's doing enough. And it's like, okay, so maybe you're using recycled paper, but like you're treating your employees like shit. Right. You know, like that's affecting the environment too, you know? And so it just feels like there isn't all, it's not fully thought out and it's not really doing what, what they believe it's doing. And, and often they're just saying that they're doing it when they know that they're not. hundred percent. I mean, the other thing is, you know, just like any other industry, I'll just continue to use oil and gas. And to be fair, that's a pretty extreme. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's an extreme comparison. But I mean, you think about, I'll just use Pride Month for an example. You know, mm-hmm. we see all these brands across all industries go ahead and they slap up their rainbow flags and they talk about the LGBT community. And then July 1st hits and it's gone. The wellness industry was created for predominantly white folks, thin white folks, no consideration really given to the communities that actually need wellness mm-hmm. services the most or have the the most difficulty being well in the first place. Right. LGBT plus, black folks, brown folks, Native Americans, women, immigrants, folks who are facing financial insecurity or who are unhoused or, you know, food insecurity, any of those things, wellness services were not created or designed for those people. And if you really look at what these companies are saying you should do the way you should eat, the way you should look and work out. It's based on white bodily ideals. And it's like expecting folks to line up with this cultural criteria that's mixed in with all sorts of stereotypes, stigmas and prejudices. And the wellness industry goes, okay, this is what health looks like through the lens of Western culture or as an American. So we're going to sell this to people. We're going to give you a system to meet this bodily ideal. And, you know, we hear a lot about the pressure on women to, you know, the way that these services are marketed to women. And that's true. They're also marketed more heavily towards populations that are historically and, and currently marginalized and minoritized the same populations I've been talking about. But when it comes to men, we don't really hear a lot about that. You know, the whole bodybuilding industry in particular is a cesspool for this stuff, the supplement industry. So I I also want to address something you said, like how scary this stuff is. When I learned about all of this, I was kind of in denial for a while because, you know, I had just spent two and a half years getting a degree in nutrition and functional medicine. And it was towards the end of my last semester when I became aware of these things. And I was like, oh my God, did I just spend two and a half years of my life basically studying something because I had an eating disorder that went undiagnosed for too long. And now I'm part of an industry that just wants to 
you know, continue to profit off of everybody's suffering and misery. So I actually went through a grieving phase. Like I felt grief and loss for my time and for what my passions once were, who I thought I once was. And I know other people who I've shared that with have felt the same. Like when they see, you know, they've been working out for so many years and they thought that it was just a lifestyle or they thought that, you know, they were just really passionate about like bodybuilding or nutrition come to find out they were struggling with disordered eating. It's a big part of your identity, you know? So I just want to acknowledge, acknowledge that. And I also want to say that, you know, everything that the wellness industry has to offer or the fitness industry, I'm not saying it's all pathological and it's all bad and we have to avoid it and cancel everything. That's not what I'm saying at all, because look, like there is a place for being intentional with what we eat. Um, medical nutrition therapy, it's a real thing. Therapeutic diets, a real thing. And, you know, all the benefits to the mind and body from exercise, very real. But when your entire life and being is centered around those things, mm. that can be a big problem. Um, and it can cause stress that we aren't even aware of when our whole life is based around trying to live up to these standards and these protocols and these ideals. I, I feel like we're, I mean, what we're talking about right now is really a, a niche within what these words popped up for me as you were talking, like the great uncovering, like it feels like the surface is being lifted. We're like taking the blanket off of, and, and you're talking about like your experience kind of going through this process, coming to the realization of like what can be within the wellness industry, good or bad. And it feels like we've all kind of been doing that over the last few years with, with realizing that we don't want to be in the career that we're in or the marriage that we're in or that we're queer when we once had denied it for decades because no one was allowing us to explore our sexuality. And, and so it feels like all of these things are very scary. Finding the truth about how we actually function as a human, how the humans around us are treating us and creating the world that we live in today, it can be very, very scary. And at the same time, necessary, totally necessary, even though it hurts. Absolutely. And it's, it's something that needs to be done, but it's very painful to go through. Yeah. You know, the, the thing that I was just thinking about as you were, you were saying that is, you know, what can we actually do? And we can dive more into that, I think a little bit later, but I think, you know, as a first step, if you're listening to this and this is the first time you're hearing about this, or thinking about this, mm -hmm. just building an awareness as with anything is really the first step. So I just want to encourage anyone, if you're feeling like, oh, I need to stop working out or I need to stop eating certain foods, that's not what we have to do as a first step. Um, okay. Just this building this awareness is a really good place for you to start. You know, there's a lot of misunderstandings when it comes to wellness, when it comes to mental health, when it comes to eating disorders overall. And I really want to dive into eating disorders with you, especially eating disorders for men, but just overall. Like, what do you think are some of the most common misunderstandings that mental health professionals or just lay people have about eating disorders and, mm -hmm. and what would be the correct understanding of whatever it is that you're about to say? Yeah. So when we envision a eating disorder, I think we think about someone who's severely malnourished, someone who's very thin. And in movies, it's usually a white woman or a white <laughs> younger girl right. who is not eating, is purging. And it's just anorexia. That's what we're familiar with, anorexia and bulimia. Eating disorders, disordered eating, those are two different things. And they're on a spectrum. Now, I mean, you're a therapist. I'm curious to know, and you know, I, I know 
I'm familiar with what the training does look like, but when you were going through your training as getting your master's in social work and your doctorate, how much time did you, do you think you've spent even talking about eating disorders or learning about them? I would say, this is a great question. I would say probably like eight paragraphs in total throughout all the books that I read (laughs) and all that they, and all the paragraphs talked about was the criteria for the disorders, not, not, not the, not the causes or a large amount of the treatments or the most affected populations. Yeah, nothing. Actually, even though I've specialized in addiction for as long as I have, and they do have similar mechanisms, addiction and eating disorders, I would have no idea how to work with someone with one, which is, which is shocking. I think some people will be like, what do you mean? Like this therapist would have no idea how to work with somebody with an eating disorder, but I mean, all therapists can't and shouldn't specialize in everything, but it is pretty shocking that if somebody asks me to explain the mechanism with which somebody develops an eating disorder and what the best solution would be, I could guess based off my physiology and my understanding of how the brain works and the body, but that would be just, that would be me piecing together education and in other areas to, to inform this topic instead of being directly informed on it, you know? Right. Uh, Well, I mean, that's, it's so hard for me to hear that there's eight paragraphs, you know, of all the education that you have, but it's also not surprising because I've looked into this a lot, you know, like what is the actual educational standards for eating disorders? And there aren't any. So that's the first thing. And to add to, you know, what you just said, you know, I have an, I have a master's degree in nutrition that's licensed eligible. I can go and earn my clinical hours and get a license and start working with people. I probably had one and a half paragraphs on all wow. this in my entire program. So nutrition, most nutrition professionals aren't inherently, in my opinion, qualified to work with folks with an eating disorder. Same with personal trainers, same with health, health coaches and therapists in general. Not everybody is qualified to work with everyone. But I think the key is, you know, acknowledging what your limitations are, which is important, which, you know, you just kind of vocalize that. But the thing is, A lot of professionals, and especially the for-profit companies that they work for, they do not acknowledge their limitations. They're not aware of their limitations. So in terms of like what an eating disorder is, the reason I asked you that is just to highlight that not every therapist or nutrition professional or fitness professional can be a resource for you. If you think you have an eating disorder, not everyone just because of their certification or education is qualified to help. So that's the first thing. So if you're someone, even primary care doctors, you know, like if you've gone to your primary care doctor, like, you know, I just, I just remembered, I, I remember telling the first time I ever brought this up in therapy, it was maybe like five, six ish years ago. It was before I had any sort of understanding of, of what I'm even talking about. Now, my therapist goes, no, that doesn't really sound like an eating disorder. I wish I could eat the way you do. I wish oh, I could No. I know. And meanwhile, I just like I'm thinking about food all the time. I'm stressed about it. I'm constantly reading labels. I'm restricting, doing all kinds of things, binge eating. And she tells me that's aspirational. And I'm like, oh, my God, I can't. Well, well, the thing is, you know, a lot of what we know of in the diet industry and the nutrition space I see your reaction to that was very, like, you're very... <laughs> I'm like, oh, this person, I can't. Oh, I know, I know. But, you know, the diet industry is 
really built on preying on our insecurities about our body. We're supposed to look a certain way. Here's the plan that will will help you look like that. And it's always packaged up though as health. If you follow this diet or you eat this way, you'll be healthy. So then, you know, we hear we'll be healthy. Well, through our cultural lens, whether you're listening to this and you're, you know, American or you're, you're here in the West or you're not, every culture has their own definition of what health looks like. But here in America, everything is through this biomedical lens. It's through our own cultural lenses. And in America, health is typically for, for women, it's a small, thin frame, typically not very muscular. And then for most men, it's muscular, tall, you know, very fit, athletic. But that really, you know, a lot of people talk about, oh, well, you know, that's important for evolution of society and everything. And I'm like, I get that. That's a valid sociological and anthropological theory, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking right. about how the industry even use that you know like this is what our ancestors ate and why that's true of course it's true and this is you know what it what you know here's some markers of fitness and survival and resiliency that's great but they're continuing to just sell us these systems and programs and it's not really health so Mm -hmm. health is an individual you know of course there's measures of health and biomarkers of health irrefutable but you know most of what we know when it comes to food and fitness, it's not actual true informed definitions of health and it's not individualized. You know, the the nutrition and fitness space, the diet industry love to put out like, this is the savior for everyone. And this diet for everyone, that's the problem will transform your body. Not everything works for everyone. And when we start a diet, you know, I can tell you, like, I've been on, I think, every single diet there ever was, like every weight gain diet, weight loss diet, mm-hmm. cutting, toning, whatever it is, I've tried it. I've learned about it. Same with fitness programs. I've tried every single bodybuilding protocol, hit protocol, interval training, all the things. And when some of them didn't work for me, I blamed myself. And, and that's what the industry does. They say, oh, well, you need more willpower. You need more discipline here's a program to help you build more discipline and willpower, you know? Yeah. Um, But, you know, the thing is, these programs aren't designed for folks, especially diet and nutrition plans. They don't take into consideration whether or not you have a disability, your history of trauma, how how your nervous system functions, whether or not you live in an area where safe, you have a safe environment to work out or a pleasant environment to work out. They don't take into consideration whether or not you're working 50 hours a week, a really hard job just to provide for yourself and your family. You're expected to just stick to these programs no matter what. And then when it doesn't work out, it's your fault. You know, that's, that's ridiculous. So I kind of got sidetracked, but in terms of what eating disorders are, but I think that's an important thing to keep in mind is if you're someone who has been dieting or you're on a diet or you're following a fitness plan and you find yourself like really struggling, maybe it's not you. Like maybe it's the program, mm-hmm. the environment. Maybe it's the lack of support that you have to accomplish certain goals. And maybe your goals aren't what they actually should be for you. Maybe they're the goals that you read somewhere that you should have, or some program told you, you need to set these types of goals. Maybe they're just not 
you know, the best fit for you. Yeah. And I feel like everything that you've said, and it's totally okay that we're shifting away from sort of going into like the misunderstandings of eating disorders, because I feel like just on a broader scale, like we can keep it more umbrella of like, how do we even get to these misunderstandings, right? We're, we're following programs, we're following cer- services that are listed and like infographics from those programs that just right. reinforce, oh, well, this must be the right program for me because look at what this feed post just said. That's exactly me. Now I must download this program. And I feel like as you were talking and, and we were really emphasizing the lack of individuality, the word profit just kept coming up like, yeah, it makes sense. The more a company wants to make profit, the more they must like, essentially, if it's like an actual product development, like fewer SKUs, right? Fewer products that just make them applicable to everybody so that you can sell on a mass scale. And maybe something like a t-shirt, you know, hopefully you'll have inclusive sizes, but like I just, you know, one design for a t-shirt. Okay. But you can't have one design for health, one design for wellness and profit gets in the way of that. I want to ask you about that. Can profit be important for wellness companies? And if so, how should it be utilized or should they all be nonprofit? Yeah. Well, the first thing I want to say before I answer that is uh, one thing I really wanted to highlight in this conversation is there, there's something called the social determinants of health. And the wellness and nutrition industry, they only focus on fitness and nutrition. There are literally hundreds of, if you dive into the literature and the research, there are hundreds and hundreds of factors that contribute to our health. And more than 85% of them are social, environmental, and economic factors. Mm-hmm. Diet and fitness are less than 10% you know, of, of what actually impacts our overall health. Now, the thing is, those are two things that we can kind of control ourselves to a certain extent. You know, we could choose to eat some more vegetables. We can choose to go for a walk, whatever it is. Of course, with, you know, with consideration given to the things I said earlier, what those limitations might be, we can't always change whether or not our neighborhood has a space for us to walk. Right. We can't change whether or not we can afford to eat certain foods sometimes the industry doesn't really talk about that because they can't sell social mm-hmm. change or policy change, or they can't sell changing your neighborhood. So profit is the core of, you know, this industry as with any industry. So I guess to directly answer your question, and this is kind of even contradictory to my own work. And I acknowledge that, you know, my goal with my own businesses are to honestly be put out of business. So we don't, Need, right. nobody, I hope nobody needs what we're building anymore. You know, right? right? The goal is everybody has access to all of these things. I feel that the healthcare industry, the education industry, and mental health, social services, no business being for profit. The for profit industry should not influence that at all. Now, a lot of people might be making assumptions about my political views based on that statement. Mm-hmm. You're probably right. But the the fact of the matter is, regardless of what my views are, I also acknowledge we live in a society and, you know, we're living in capitalism. And if we were to just close all these businesses and completely change everything overnight, it would be a complete fucking disaster here in in America, as it would be in in any country. So, you know, I think the midpoint, I don't even know if I want to say it's a midpoint, an opportunity for improvement marginal improvement is 
this idea of conscious capitalism and building businesses that are socially responsible and that are held accountable by our regulatory agencies. Yeah. You know, a lot of people talk about how the pharmaceutical industry is, you know, lobbying for looser laws or lobbying so they can, you know, roll things out quicker. And that's true. But the wellness industry does the same thing. You know, the supplement industry lobbies for less restrictions on supplements so they don't have to get FDA approval. Mm -hmm. um, the wellness industry lobbies for free market for these supplements so folks can keep buying them so they can keep making money. So with all that said, you know, again, I'm not saying don't buy these products, but think about who you're buying them from. Think about why you're buying them. And also be honest with yourself about like, is this actually working for me? Or is this just like a thing that I'm distracting myself with, you know, because for years, like I took a ton of supplements and I had all these symptoms. And when I stop taking some of the supplements, despite having a master's degree in nutrition, I was still kind of convinced like, no, it's not the supplements. I don't have any interactions with anything. Right. And I kind of restarted and eliminated things. And a lot of my symptoms went away. Mm. And it's just the same kind of with the pharmaceutical industry. People say, oh, there's a pill for everything and take a pill for the side effect from the other pill. Right. Supplement industry does the same thing. You know, you take something for your joints and that causes you to have an upset stomach. Well, then take a probiotic. You know, it's just I think, you know, the, the point that I'm trying to make here is just, you know, discernment and really checking in with yourself and asking yourself, like, is this working for me? Like, is this really helpful for me? Is this truly what I need right now? And in the context of, you know, like eating disorders, do I really need a diet? Do right. I really need to restrict or would more freedom with food be helpful for me right now? Would more of a neutral perspective about my body be more supportive than me getting up and criticizing every inch of it every single morning? Yeah. It's so, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking like, where are people supposed to go to know, like, maybe I should not be taking these supplements because they could be causing my symptoms. I'm like, okay, well, maybe they could go to their doctor no, their doctor will give them 15 minutes and then probably prescribe them something different. And then it's just, it feels like, and which, what people talk about a lot with capitalism and, and the fact that, you know, a lot of people see profit as power is that like to gain continuous profit, you have to continue to innovate. You can't really necessarily problem solve because you need to be innovating. You, you know, problem solving could mean staying still for too long for your shareholders. And so it's just continue to innovate and make new products and, 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 and marketing. A lot of the profit of a company goes towards marketing. And then that marketing makes you believe as though they are the ones you should listen to because it's so convincing and so it's, as, and then we blame ourselves, which is the intention, right? The intention of all this marketing is to say like, we know, and you don't. And if you ever feel doubtful, just listen to us. It kind of feels like when they break those things down, it's like rule number one is the rule. And then rule number two is follow rule number one. The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. Second rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. And you just go back and forth and back and forth between those two. And you really lose your sense of autonomous decision-making because there's just doubt that's infused intentionally. And that that's, and we are already doubtful. We're already a doubtful species. 
Mm-hmm. We already are unsure of ourselves and we've created a world, a wellness industry, uh, healthcare industry, and, and literally in everything, an industrial society around us that contributes to the increase of that doubt. And it can cause us to feel like if we are unwell, it is our individual problem and we must siphon through all of the possible options and we must find the right one. And if we don't, and we were tricked by the marketing or whatever, that's on us. And like, but how can we solve a problem that we're not causing? Right. Well, you know, I, I just want to lean into the word doubt because that's really important. You know, we don't ever, you talk about this all the time. We don't learn how to navigate our bodies and our minds. Health class is bullshit. Um, <laughs> yeah. class is bullshit as it is right now. We don't actually learn how our bodies work. And I'm not saying every, every kid in school needs to be taking anatomy and physiology, but we never learn questions to check in with ourselves. Like, is this working for me? Is this a safe relationship? Am I feeling nourished? Am I feeling you know, like, how am I feeling? You know, we never learn how to even label what it is that we're going through. And, you know, one thing for me that has been so hard for recovering from just severe orthorexia and disordered eating and binge eating is I, I lost touch of my intuition and I put so much trust into like this information that I was just taking in. And that's not to say that everything is a conspiracy or everything from the industry is wrong. That's not true at all. But we don't really learn how to check in with ourselves and say, is this a good fit? Is this actually working for me? And since we don't learn that, we end up going back to things that the industry has created. Like, you know, you Google, you know, how to feel full quicker or something. And then you're getting information from companies who have supplements or programs that claim to do that. But why do you have to feel full quicker to begin with? Yeah. You know, why is it, why, how have we become so disconnected? And a big part of it, I think is due to everything in our life being marketed to us. Everything's being sold to us, every aspect of our life now. And we don't have any exposure to anything to offset that. And we never learn how to navigate that. And right now in our current society, somebody would create a product to teach you how to do it through, you know, that, the step-by-step process to exploring things, you know, and it's just, this, this topic is so intersectional. I hope that for people who are listening and, um, you know, especially for folks who are hearing this for the first time, I hope that, um, if anything, this just kind of prompts some curiosity about some of this, which is also the answer to like, well, what do I do? Like, what can I actually do to myself for myself? I think just leaning into your body and your mind and your thoughts and discerning and deciding for yourself. Like I said earlier, that's really the best first step to take. It's a good place to start and come back to when you feel chaotic or need to sort of center. What would it look like if the wellness industry was more societal and community-based because it really is so individualized right now. And, and we're, we're indicating over and over again in, in many ways that that individual wellness is bullshit. I mean, we all function individually, right? Like we have our own nervous systems, our own bodies, and we need to make individual choices. But wellness in itself, especially discussing the social determinants of health, 
it's more communal, it's more societal. So what would that look like if the wellness industry was communal versus individual? Yeah. Well, we've been hearing the term self-care a lot since COVID started. And, you know, that term actually was kind of co-opted by the medical industry back in, I think, the 50s. And there was a civil rights activist whose name, I think it was Audre Lorde. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. She was a queer author and poet and a civil rights activist who talked a lot about the importance of community care in the Black community and how the traditional systems that were built created these gaps. Well, as with everything else, the industry has since picked up on that idea. This is wonderful. We can make money off community care and this idea of self-care. You know, now we're, we are where we are. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think one thing that should shift is, I don't know if if mandating is the right word here, but I think things need to be inherently trauma-informed. That's the first thing. Yeah, Trauma-informed means to acknowledge the historical implications of things, societal implications, individuality, collaboration, mutuality, choice. And if those values and principles were instilled in the wellness industry across the board and in the, the delivery of healthcare, social services, mental health, education, shit would look completely different. And we would not have, I believe, 70% of the issues that we have now. And you know, how do we get started with that? We're still very far away from people even knowing what it means to be trauma-informed. Yeah. So we need more education there. So that's the first thing. I think a wellness industry that was more trauma-informed would be really great. And I also think if companies could just start to like be truly cultural responsive, culturally responsive and sensitive and inclusive, you know, start including queer folks into the conversations and into your business infrastructure, start hiring a more diverse population of people to lead the companies and lead these decisions. That's, that's a second step. And I mean, I think thirdly, you know, there, there needs to be some sort of policy and systems level change. And that, that applies to everything that we've been talking about. And, you know, to be fair, we, we can't legislate away everything. We can only make so many laws. We can only elect so many people, you know, right now, as I said earlier, the industry does influence our political establishment here in America. And, you know, I really think we need a whole new, whole new damn thing, basically, you know, a whole new system of society and government here, if we really want to get where it should be. But, you know, for now, I think, you know, the industry becoming more trauma-informed, becoming more inclusive, and then just having folks who understand these things represent our needs and advocate for actual change in areas where we can change them. I think, you know, those are three things that we can realize over the next several years that could have a big impact. Yeah, I could definitely see those three things having a big impact. And it feels like, yeah, I mean, just like kind of going broad for a moment. I posted this thing on on my Instagram a couple of days ago of this person in a wheelchair. She or they took a, a recording of themselves being unable to reach the soap dispenser and the sink in a bathroom, in a public bathroom. Mm-hmm. And they're just like, you know, just trying to wash my hands, you know, just trying to do something like basic personal hygiene. And, and we just live in a world. I think that my caption was like this world, like we built this world wrong. Yes. And it just feels like that. It feels like, the messages that people are are putting out there 
in today's world, in every industry that are saying like, we need to be more inclusive. You need to be more diverse. You need to be more culturally sensitive and and culturally appropriate as well. Mm -hmm. Like all they're saying is like that the world wasn't built to include everyone. And, and I find it really, really fucking hard to believe that there's any pushback on that whatsoever. You know, <laughs> I know, I know. One, one thing I was thinking about is just this idea of, of liberation, folks who identify as being liberationists for some sort of, you know, some sort of either, um, you know, population or some idea. Part of the reason I think folks gravitate to that work is because they're so truly fucking oppressed within the current system. And it's so hard to just live for certain people, you know, folks in larger bodies or mm-hmm. you might identify as being fat, folks with disabilities. You know, I was on a panel earlier this year, or oh geez, it's 2022, last <laughs> year, that was a disability justice panel um, for the University of Miami law students. And something, AJ Link was his name. And he said something that really stood out to me. And it was if we created the infrastructure in our world first for folks with disabilities and for minoritized and Mm -hmm. marginalized communities, everybody else is going to be okay. You know, like if we start with considering the needs of the folks who are considered other right now, everybody else is going to be okay. And right now, you know, we, there's a lot of anti LGBT legislation that's happening in a lot of States here. And a lot of folks are for a number of reasons, angry about that. And I mean, from the sense of like, they are anti-LGBT, you know, it makes me think like, you know, just because we're giving more rights and protections to a certain population, we're not taking away anything from anyone else, you know, you know, the wellness industry and the fitness space, like I said earlier, is inherently built for able-bodied, cisgender, straight white folks. And, you know, like I came out as gay really late in life in my, my mid twenties, And it's like, where is everybody else? You know, like I also am blind in my left eye. Like where is any representation of folks who are not able-bodied? And to to really highlight what I'm saying here, we see a lot of brands now that are putting pictures, including photography, and that's lovely. And that's great to have the representation (laughs) in marketing, but like, can these companies start to like advocate for that inclusion? At the, at the systems and, and policy level. That's something that I think will, that'll go a hell of a lot further than just putting a picture of somebody in a wheelchair up on your website banner or something. Um, well, and I feel yeah. like it, it feels, oh my God, I'm blanking on the word. I, I want to say like, performative. yeah, performative or like they're exploiting, like you're exploiting, you're exploiting right. these, these communities and these types of individuals, because you know that if they, if they are in your photos, then they will buy your products. Yeah. Even if the products aren't made <laughs> or made for them, if they can be utilized, if they're actually going to help them, it's just let's make it seem as though they are represented within our company so that they can be a representation of our customer base. Oh, that's 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 ridiculous. That's huge. Like I say all the time, there's a difference between saying like, everyone is welcome here versus this space was built with your needs in mind. Like those are two completely different things. Like anybody can buy from us. So you're welcome. Okay. Is the product like appropriate? You know, it's the same with medical care. Like, yeah, I see all kinds of patients but are you the best person to see that patient, you know? Right. 
Yeah. One thing that I appreciate about, uh, not, I was going to say appreciate about the wellness industry, but just appreciate about where we're at in terms of how the discussions that we're having about how our mind and body work and what it is that they need is that in, in most areas of society, women, if we're looking at men versus women and back in the day, cause that was all that was like, you know, spoken about men and women being against each other. It's that women were mostly marginalized and mostly oppressed in most areas of society. And it feels like with mental health, men through their own communities, as well as what women used to expect from men and what society in general expects from men, men have been sort of pushed to the side when it comes to mental health, when it comes to eating disorders, and when it comes to, to true physical health, like you said. I want to go back to when you when you realize that your how would you word it? What it is that you were working on bulking or what I, I would love to learn more about that for you, physical health, eating disorders, mental health as a man, what was that like for you throughout your life? And, and what, what do you think now about the spotlight being shed more on men in this area? Yeah, I'm really glad we're going back to that. Cause I was kind of like, Oh no, we're not going to get to talk about that. Cause I think there's, you know, a lot there that can be helpful for people. So you know, like I'm somebody right now in my life, like very privileged. I'm a tall white dude. You know, I have the means of affording whatever it is that I need. The type of care that I need, I can find it. I can afford it. I can pay for it. You know, I think about trans men. I think about other men who also LGBT or have disability, like what we're talking about. It's hard to find care that is, uh, you know, gender affirming or whatever it is. And, you know, for me at the time when I was in high school, you know, I felt like just so skinny. Like I was always so bad at sports in school. I hated gym class because like, if there was anything involving hand-eye coordination, I was like, shit, I'm just sit out, you know, like I'm done. Yeah. You know, I was, and honestly, like I, like I said, I was born blind in my left eye. Nobody ever explained to me until I was like 20 years old, how that would affect my depth perception or how that would affect my sense of space and a sense of the placement of where my body is in, in space. And I remember when a physical therapist explained that to me, I was like, so I'm not just bad at sports. Like oh, there's an actual reason why I can't kick or hold the ball. Like even oh. to this day, like I'll set a glass down and break it because I set it down too hard because I thought the table was too far away. So at the time, like my goals were to kind of help my nervous system become more aware of space through fitness and lifting, because, you know, you have to really pay attention to like, you know, proprioception and how your muscles are engaging. So that was immensely helpful for, for me in certain aspects. I say that, but that was honestly like 10% of the reason I was working out. The real reason I was working out was, you know, I just felt so skinny and unathletic. And I used to like, just look at these, like these jockey guys in high school. And I'd be like, fuck, you know, like that is what I need to look like. So I spent all of, from like 14 through like 24, 25 years old, essentially bulking for all of those years, eating in a calorie surplus, constantly worried about protein intake, making it like, I was so afraid of losing weight. And I think that's the opposite of what most women experience mm -hmm. because they're afraid of gaining weight. And, and many men are as well with eating disorders. But in my case, I was afraid of losing weight and, and like losing muscle mass thing is, you know, the bodybuilding industry, it's like all about masking and your life becomes about building muscle. And 
my life was about protein and gaining fucking weight. And when I saw the scale go down, it would cause like this, it would set off a chain of events in my brain where I would be like dissecting my diet and like critiquing myself in the mirror and like changing my workout plan and changing my entire day around how much time to spend in the gym. Like, like when, when I first moved to Florida, I was driving two hours one way to a particular gym because it had a piece of equipment that made my legs feel really good when I worked out on it. And I liked the way they looked after I used it. And I was spending so much money on expensive supplements and like masking powders and protein powders and all of this shit that was just like not necessary at all. But during the same time as well, like I said earlier, I was sick. Like I constantly felt exhausted because I was working out way beyond what I needed to do. I was actually talking about this today in, in my own therapy. Mm-hmm. I always had this goal. Like I want to weigh 225 pounds. Well, I got to 225 pounds and I was like, I need another 20 pounds. You know, like it was just never enough. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, you know, there's so many reasons why I felt that way, but nobody really talks about that. How, you know, like, or, you know, we talk about eating disorders and disorder eating. People think of restriction and not eating and, and losing weight, but nobody talks about how the opposite can, can happen too. And, and yeah. one, one other thing I want to highlight there is I see a lot of people on social media who talk about their, their, their journey with fitness. And they say, you know, I used to have an eating disorder and now I found figure competition or bikini or bodybuilding. And that's been an outlet for me. And I worry sometimes because I wonder, has there been recovery with the eating disorder or have you found an outlet and community that is accepting of those behaviors? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think about that a lot. Getting well is so difficult. Yeah. Like I'm just thinking about like, Cause like, yeah, I mean, oh my God. Yeah. Like we can believe like, oh yeah. Like actually this community has like helped me heal. And like, that's such a good point. Like, has it, or has it just affirmed your beliefs and now they feel normalized? And it's just, there's always a question that you can ask about whether or not this is what's best. And that can sound really overwhelming and that can actually become an obsession in itself. And it does for so many people. Is this clean? Is that clean? Is this going to make me bigger? Is this going to make me smaller? And, And we ruminate over and over and over again so that we don't leave people with that train of thought. What advice do you have of like, just like, what's the first step? If someone's like, okay, I understand that the wellness industry is also a for-profit industry. It's similar to the healthcare, the pharmaceutical industry. Most areas in society today are not inclusive and not diverse, but we are on the trajectory to improving those things. How do I get started making my own choices and, and, and figuring out what's best for me? Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing I just can't acknowledge enough, like if you're feeling like this shit is chaotic and overwhelming and a hot mess, it is like it is. So if you're feeling overwhelmed with this, it's overwhelming. Like this is really overwhelming. As I said earlier, you know, I think learning, you know, education is really important, but there also comes a point where you learn about something and you're like, okay, well, what can I do with this now? And that's a little tough to answer because, you know, I'm sure there are people who 
are actively struggling with an eating disorder who are listening to this, don't have access to therapy, you know, and then folks on the other end of the spectrum who may have recovered who just aren't, you know, maybe some of this is new thought or really affirming. So, you know, I think the first thing is really think about what you actually feel like you need right now. And, and a question that I typically ask myself is, what do I need more of? And what do I need less of? And then I say, why? Or instead of why, because sometimes that's really hard, I'll say, really though? Like, where, where does this idea that I need this thing actually coming from? Mm-hmm. And when I started kind of dissecting why I was eating the way I was, you know, moving the way I was, I didn't really have the answers. And I'm still finding some of those answers. So I think, you know, really just giving yourself, holding space for yourself to figure all of this out and not put pressure on yourself to like, you know, as the wellness industry loves to do a 12 week blowout, you know, or a 12 week plan. There's no 12 week blowout to reversing all of this stuff either or deconstructing this thought. And this, the shit runs really deep for a lot of people. You know, I, I think about people who, are are a part of, you know, like maybe a religion where their diet was, you know, kind of prescribed by members of the clergy, or maybe they have a lot of guilt around eating a certain way because of, you know, something in their community or a stigma in their community. So it's, it's, it's more than just, you know, like, what can I do, you know, or what can I do as a person? So those are some things to think about. And then I guess the second thing is, you know, like, where do you actually need support from people? start with your social media. Like a God for me, like I had to unfollow literally hundreds of people when I started eating disorder therapy, because seeing the meal plans, progress pictures, before and afters, ab check Wednesdays or whatever, like that shit was very, like it sucked me right back in. And even now when I read, I have to be very cautious of when I'm reading success stories or even looking at pictures of people online I need to be very aware of what I'm thinking about when I'm looking at at those pictures, especially of other guys. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a good place to start like a small change, like look at who you're following, look at the content you're, you know, digesting. Um, And then just think about like how you need support. You know, do you really need a personal trainer because you lack discipline (laughs) or would it be helpful for you to maybe look into a therapist who specializes in, you know, health at every size or, Um, intuitive eating, you know, those are two things to maybe even look up if you're not familiar with those terms. Uh, But there are therapists who have uh, certifications in those area, intuitive eating counselors. My therapist, uh, Molly, I think it's Baher is how you say her last name. I might be wrong. She's based in Miami and she's been incredible. Um, And there's a ton of other therapists who are LGBT or black or whatever you're looking for, who are, who are certified in these areas. And then lastly, I, you know, there's a lot of communities online, like there's anti-diet, you know, there's, there's a lot of different pockets of space online for folks who are recovering. Now for men, it's tough. There's not a lot of us. I know there's somebody named William Hornby who posts about this stuff and somebody else I just found, uh, not really familiar with his work or don't really want to give him an endorsement, but his name is Bobby Kaz. K-A-Z-Z on Instagram and TikTok. Uh, He talks a lot about his journey with uh, eating disorder and binge eating and things like that. But, you know, I think all of that to be said, think about how you can just really share this shit with people. Like, can we talk about this more? 
Uh, yeah. We need to talk about this more. Where, where's somewhere where you can share what you're struggling with more? And where are those safe places for you? And sometimes it's hard to find that, but that's, that's, those are some things that come to mind. Those are great. Those are great. Yeah. I would, yeah, I resonate with all three of those. Those would be so helpful. And I like William. His content's really funny. Yeah. William Hornby. I think I follow him too. And Tim probably does too. So if you go to our platforms and you can't find him, then you can look in our following. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this, Tim. Your personal background, your educational background, the way that you can speak, your heart and the intention that you have behind why you're on here in the first place, why you're doing what you're doing makes you a very special person. And I appreciate you sharing your take on these things because I I just align with them so well. I want people to go and follow you and I want people to find your messaging. So please, can you tell us where can they find you? What are you offering? What's next for you? Yeah. So, I mean, if you're interested in more of what I talked about here, I my Instagram is really the best place. It's uh, instagram.com slash the Tim Fry, F-R-I-E. And, you know, scroll back through my old posts and, you know, I don't, I post about all kinds of things, but they all really intersect with everything that we talked about today. Uh, most of the work that I'm focused on right now is really getting a company called Clove Health started, which Courtney is an advisor for, and really putting this information out into the world to scale and getting this in front of healthcare providers. But, you know, message me or, you know, uh, follow me on Instagram and send me an email. Um, I've kind of stopped looking at most of my DMs because I just can't. (laughs) But uh, send me an email if, uh, you know, you want to talk about this stuff, I can at least put you in the right direction. And um, I'm happy to connect with folks. And nine times out of 10, there's someone who I can recommend that you learn more of this from. So I love thank it. you, Courtney. This is, this has been really great. And it's been very like, it's been fun. I thought I was going to be more anxious and that dissipated in like the first 15 seconds. And I just really appreciate you giving me a platform to talk about this because all of this stuff is like I said, just really being discussed in pockets here and there. And uh, it, it means a lot that you're using your platform to talk about these topics. So, so thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And our final segment, oh my God, you're a human. What is one unapologetically human thing that Tim does? Oh Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, why the, the fact that this is so hard to answer is telling of why this question is so important for you to yeah. ask. <laughs> uh, you know, one thing that I'm working on is kind of doing what I just did and just being very vocal about like, wow, this is hard or like I'm anxious. And something I'm trying to do is just let people know how I'm feeling in the moment. And I, my hope is that they have feel some sort of, you know, nobody needs my permission for anything, but feels permission to do the same thing. So one thing that I do is I tell people all the time, like, I'm really nervous about this, or, you know, I'm having a lot of anxiety about this. And, you know, my hope is that, like I said, that that invites other people to do the same. And I guess to take that one step deeper, like, I feel shit, you know, like, I'm, who would have thought, like, (laughs) we all feel things. Um, And I think it's just important to, to share that. So, so, yeah. I love that. And uh, something that came up for me as you were saying that was, 
I gave this, it was like my first like public speaking thing that I did for NAMI Orange County. And people came up to me after and they said two things. First, they said, next time, don't say that you're nervous when you get up there. And also don't keep your hands in your pockets because it makes you look insecure. And I understand like, okay, I get it. I understand those two things. And like, who is that helping? Like, what is that helping, right? right? Like if I say I'm nervous, then somebody else is going to feel comfortable saying that they're nervous next time they are. And it was fucking cold. Like, I'm going to keep my hands in my pockets. Like, I don't give a shit, you know? Like, it was super cold. It was like six in the morning. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that just makes me think again of like all the societal expectations. Like, what is a woman giving a, a presentation on mental health look like? look like however the fuck you are, yeah. You know, whoever you are. And it's funny, you actually had that experience because one of my therapists in high school, like I used to be very afraid of presenting. Like I never could have had this conversation years ago. And I remember he asked me, what, what's your biggest fear? And I was like, well, they're going to find out that I'm nervous. And he was like, well, what if you just told everybody like in the beginning that you were nervous? And I started doing that. I did the same thing with you in the beginning of our call. And it just, I think it humanizes you. And I think that it, it's like we need to start telling people how we're feeling about things and stop putting on a performance all the time. You know, yeah. that's why we're in the place we are that we are, you know? And like, why does it have to be a secret? Like, it's no secret that human beings have feelings. So why are we making our feelings a secret? And anxiety about talking in front of however many people, it's stressful. Like, I don't care who you are. That's stressful. Right. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, thank you so much. We will definitely do this again. And please go follow Tim on Instagram at the Tim Fry, spelled F R I E. Follow me if you don't already. If you don't, that's ridiculous. The period truth, period doctor. And stay tuned because we'll definitely have Tim back on. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Human First please subscribe, leave a review. It really helps with being able to keep this podcast free and share it on your social media to help spread the message. Tag me at the period truth period doctor. As always, I'm glad that you exist. See you next week.